0: we began reading through the new testament the first of october and we're going to spend this year reading through the new testament if you would like to join us there is a devotional guide out on a table in the lobby that you can grab afterwards and this week we made our way through parts of matthew and parts of romans we made our way through a passage that is you know it's one of the most epic passages anywhere but certainly in the bible and I would say it's no exaggeration to say that the the sermon, Jesus' sermon, and it is a sermon, in Matthew chapters five, six, and seven, has had more impact on ethics in the world than any other ethical statement or writing. That's a lot, but I honestly believe that, especially in the Western world. If you grew up in the Western world, profound impact on our ethics. The interesting thing about it is, Not just how awesome it is and how profound it is, but what Jesus chooses to talk about and not talk about. We're going to read a passage today that, if we gave it a title, we would say, The Better Way of Relating. So we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 12. And if you've never read the Bible, if you've never been to church before, you're going to recognize one of the statements in this passage. Uh, It's that epic. Let's go old school and stand out of reverence for God's word. And we're going to have Janik read the scripture for us this morning. We'll be reading from the English Standard Version, Matthew chapter 12, verses 1 through 12. And Janik, if you'd read for us.
1: Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and tend to attack you. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if a son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? So whatever you wish that others would do, to you. Do also to them, for this is the law
0: and the prophets. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Janet. You may be seated. Better way of relating. So, do to others as you would have them do to you. This is often called the golden rule. Yes, you've heard it before. This is the law and the prophets according to Jesus. That's what he said. So basically, he's saying doing to others as you want them to do to you is a fair summary of all that God requires of us. This is the essence of the way God has related to human beings throughout human history, and it's the essence of the way we were designed to relate to one another if we want to have life-giving relationships. Do to others as you want them to do to you, and this provides the context for the passage that Janik just read for us. That's important. Put a pen in that. You will notice today, as we go through this, I'm going to take the minority report on one part of this passage. You'll see what I mean when we get there, but I'm going to break open this passage in a way that it's not often understood, but I think it's right. But before we jump into too deeply, let's start this morning by backing up from the passage a little bit and taking a look at the big picture, the the passage Matthew five through seven, which I just talked about. If you're reading through the New Testament, you know that we read this passage this past week. Let's make a few important observations about this. And I have to warn you, there's a lot of material here. I want to really take a really high-level survey of Matthews five through seven, so I'm going to talk very quickly. So Hang on. This is the longest collection of Jesus' teaching. It's the only real sermon that we have from Jesus. If you read this, you may wonder how in the world could they have remembered this? And I would say a couple of things about that. First of all, the ancient Near East was an oral culture. They were oral learners, so oral communication was their only medium. They would have been used to long oral sermons and remembering those sermons as opposed to us. We have a more video communication or mixed medium communication. The second thing I would say is this was almost definitely Jesus's stump speech. We see a shortened version of it in Luke's biography of Jesus. He takes some of the parts of the, the, what's called the Sermon on the Mount, Matthews 5 through 7, and he lists a very shortened version of that. I remember several years ago reading Uh, One of the lieutenants of uh, Martin Luther King Jr., I think it was Ralph Abernathy, he was asked one time, how in the world could Martin Luther King Jr. have remembered the speech on the mall? 600,000 people, he stands up, he delivers the speech, how does he remember that? And the lieutenant, again, I think it was uh, Ralph Abernathy Jr., rolled his eyes and he says, we've heard that speech a hundred times before. This was Martin Luther King Jr.'s regular speech, I believe, the Sermon on the Mount, And its themes were regular themes for Jesus, so the disciples knew them well. Matthew 5 through 7 was clearly a sermon. That's important. It's not just a random collection of important sayings, which is how we often treat it. It's a sermon. And because it's a sermon, it fits together. It it has a flow. It has an integrity. Jesus was fitting pieces together with intentionality. So we need to read it like we read the overwhelming majority of the Bible. We need to read it in context. And when we do, we find this is really a brilliant piece of communication. Jesus begins the sermon by shattering our expectations about what it means to live the good life. We talked about this last week. We talked about our view of the good life, and this is the very opening of Matthew chapter 5. Basically, our view of the good life is roughly equal to being young, beautiful, wealthy, and living the American dream. Even though we know how superficial that view is, it still exercises tremendous influence over where we live, what we buy, how we parent. Besides from being superficial, our view is a lie. We know it. Gossip magazines every week are littered with stories about the complete meltdown of the lives of the young, rich, and famous. So how can that be? If they're living the good life, how is it that their lives are so often falling apart? Jesus had a very different vision. In short, according to Jesus, the good life, belongs to those who are part of the kingdom of God. And when Jesus uses the phrase kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven, and he does so twice in the opening 12 verses of this sermon, he means God's control over our lives and our willful surrender to that control. And with this introduction, Jesus gave us the underlying theme of the whole sermon. That is, this is what life in the kingdom of God looks like. And then he spends the rest of the sermon unfolding that. Okay, after dropping this bomb in his introduction, Jesus slowly and brilliantly unfolds that. First, in chapter 5, he addressed some critical, big-ticket behavioral issues. If you know this passage, you'll be familiar with this. I think we should notice how consistently he traces those issues back to the source. That's part of the heart of Jesus' ethic. He knew human makeup well enough to know that you cannot change behavior with anything like a direct approach. By the time our intentions have arisen to the level of our willful choices, it's usually too late to bring change. I'm going to say that again. By the time our intentions have arisen to the level of willful choice, it's usually too late to bring change. So Jesus chases our intentions back to their source and recommends that we shut them off at the source if we want to live as residents of the kingdom. So imagine that my yard is flooded because I've left my hose on for two weeks. I can bring in a truckload of dirt and spread it around my yard and hope it will absorb the water, or I can take every towel that Diane and I own, lay it down in the yard, but it will not stop the flood. What I need to do is turn off the valve. I need to shut it off at its source. According to Jesus, that's the blueprint for dealing with big-ticket behavioral issues in our lives in kingdom living. So you've been told, Jesus said, don't murder. The crowd's thinking, how in the world do we do that? In a shame-honor culture, uh, murder is kind of what we do, Jesus. Jesus says, if you want to live in the kingdom, you have to not murder and shut it off at its source. That means you've got to go back to the point of anger. Don't even call anyone a fool. You've been told, don't commit adultery. How do we do that in a sex-crazed culture? Well, you have to shut the valve off at the point of lust. You do whatever you have to do to shut off the sources of lust in your life, et cetera. He talks other issues, oaths. You know, don't be manipulative in your speech. Don't oversay, but just let your yes be yes and your no be no. So he goes through some big-ticket behavioral issues. After the big-ticket behavioral section, he moves in chapter 6 to the topics of our religious life and money. It's interesting that he puts those two together, isn't it? That's a discussion for another day. So if you look at the text, you'll see that Jesus assumes that we give and pray and fast. But his teaching is when you do so, do it simply, sincerely, and for God alone. We must not be doing our religion for anyone else. That includes spouse and kids, for example. Don't do your religion for anyone else and don't do it in a way that's showy. It's not about showiness. By the way, This means that those of you who struggle with knowing how to pray and you feel insecure about it, if you actually do it, your prayers may be sweeter to God's heart than some of the fine-sounding prayers that other people are offering. According to Jesus, our religion should be simple, sincere, and for God alone. He then follows up the religion teaching with a section about money. In essence, he asks us, What in the world is the deal with your obsession and your worry over money and possessions? I think he had 21st century northern Virginians in mind when he taught this. According to Jesus, our obsession with money and stuff is, listen, it's ineffective, it's unnecessary, and it demonstrates a profound distrust in God. The kingdom alternative is radically freeing. According to Jesus, if you want to live to its fullest, then seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness first, and then wildly, everything else will be added. What? Yes. We don't have time to talk about that. But now, we're ready to hear the incredibly important teaching about what living life in the kingdom of God looks like in everyday relationships. All right, listen. After we read this passage, Janik is in my small group. And after we read this passage in my small group this week, someone in my group asked a really great question. Uh, They said, Why is God going to judge us? Don't judge or you'll be judged. I mean, I know we're not supposed to judge, I know it's not good. But then Jesus says, we'll be judged if we judge. I thought God wouldn't condemn us. Isn't that the whole point of Jesus? Question mark. Well, that's a great question. And I offer it here to remind us of the importance of the context of this section of teaching. Remember, big picture, Jesus is talking about what life as a resident of God's kingdom looks like. Clearly, in chapter 7, he's moved on from a different topic, from our obsession and our anxiety over money. So what's the topic? Well, the whole section points in one direction, but the summary makes it absolutely clear, doesn't it? Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. In other words, Jesus is talking about our relationships with one another. So, that helps us understand the first part of this teaching. When we offer condemnation in our relationships with others, we sour the atmosphere to such a degree that condemnation will return to us in our relationships not by God but by others we'll get back what we put out this is just how it works and and we've seen it work that way countless times in our lives and in our relationships Jesus is telling us if we want to have healthy life-giving relationships we will have to utterly abandon the tried and true practice of condemning and blaming others If we want to have healthy, life-giving relationships, we will have to utterly abandon the tried and true practice of condemning and blaming others. Let's do a thought experiment. I want you to think of the most judgmental person you know, and hopefully they didn't come to church with you today. So think of the most judgmental person you know. Let's make this easy. Let's go to the world of politics. So if you're a conservative this morning, I want you to think of that cousin that is a lunatic liberal who offhandedly ridicules most of the principles you stand for, America stands for, and doesn't just disagree, but minimizes it, haughty, and condescending about it. You got him? Okay, if you're a liberal, I want you to think of your uncle, the wingnut conspiracy-believing conservative who refuses to see the world as it actually is and is loudly against everything that they don't agree with themselves. Okay, get that person in your head. I bet if you haven't even been in America for very long, you're catching on. Now, how effective are their Facebook posts? Do they usually deepen your relationship with them? Do they convince you to change your mind? That's just how effective you and I are in our relationships, when we lead with condemnation. Now, let's be honest. Condemnation almost always works. That's why we do it. It it creates self-doubt and shame in its recipients, which are powerful motivators in the short run. We often get what we want and when we use condemnation in the short run. It gives us leverage, it puts us in control. In almost every setting, we can regain the upper hand if we use disdain, dismissal, and vilification. But over the long run, it always returns to us. In the long run, it's never an effective strategy. For proof, you only need to think of how many times you were glad someone condemned you. Don't do that, Jesus says. I think this teaching may be more important for us than we realize at first glance the the church in America has a bad reputation today. Church is exactly like Gateway for exactly this issue. Outside observers believe that we are judgmental. And we can claim, well, it's not about us. That's just a function of their guilt, all we want to. But at the very least, you and I need to remember, they never accused Jesus of this. They accused him of a lot of things, but they didn't accuse him of being judgmental. But wait, Ed, aren't we supposed to evaluate others and help them with the things that they're doing wrong and their sin? So Let me offer a parenthesis here. I've been using the word condemnation intentionally because this is one of the meanings behind the word judge as Jesus has used it here. And I think it's certainly what Jesus had in mind. But the word judge can also mean to evaluate or to assess. So, Ed, aren't we supposed to do that? And I would say, yes. Pause for dramatic effect. Our evaluation of others is inevitable, and it can be very helpful. But that yes comes with a warning that underscores how important Jesus' teaching is here. So I'm going to chase this a little bit. Look at this. In Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, the apostle Paul says this, Brothers and sisters, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. So Paul here, not only talking about assessing others, he goes even further. He's telling us to take that to them and and tell them. But I want you to notice the governors. He builds around this kind of activity. First, it should be done to restore, he says, not to punish And isn't the spirit of condemnation always a spirit of punishment? Secondly, he says it should be done gently with the full awareness that you are no better than the one you're assessing. In fact, you're always on the very verge yourself of doing the same kinds of things. And thirdly, it should be done by those who are spiritual. Not everyone is ready for this kind of activity. I love how Professor Dallas Willard comments about this. He's a philosophy professor, and Willard says this, We must beware of believing that it is okay for us to condemn as long as we are condemning the right things. It's not as simple as that. I can trust Jesus to go into the temple and drive out those who are profiting from religion, beating them with a rope. I cannot trust myself to do so. I mean, can you trust yourself to beat your adult family member with a rope because of their serious lifestyle mistakes? Maybe you're right about their lifestyle mistakes. Maybe they're living in a way that has disastrous long-term consequences. But can you trust yourself to be the one to deliver that hard word? Or can you trust yourself to bring correction to your Facebook friends for their wrong-headed views and actions? Jesus could handle both of those things with maturity, gentleness and with a view toward restoring. Can you and I handle that? Judge not that you be not judged. Jesus said, now there's a lot we could say about his incredible cool illustration of the speck and the plank, but we got to move on to pigs and dogs, so let's do that. We are not to give what is holy to dogs, Jesus says, or give pearls to pigs. What? In other words, If we want healthy, life-giving relationships, we will not impose our good things on those who don't need them or want them. So here's the thing. In both of these situations, with condemnation and with giving pearls to pigs, Jesus is picturing human relationships at their worst. That is, when one person is putting themselves above another person. This is never how the kingdom postures itself. This is never how Jesus postured himself. Why were so-called sinners so comfortable coming to Jesus? Sinners, outcasts, the disenfranchised, the lowly ones who couldn't afford to live in northern Virginia, the ones who would be embarrassed to come to a place like Gateway Community Church, they don't feel like they belong. Those are the people that felt most comfortable with Jesus. Why? Well, a part of it is that Jesus was never condescending. He was never condemning and never imposing. He met people where they were and offered what they requested or what they truly knew they needed. Look at the woman caught in adultery. Look at the woman at the well. Look at the untouchable lepers. If you know these stories at all, you know that Jesus met people where they were and offered what they requested or what they truly knew they needed. You know, I've read this part of Jesus' sermon about the dogs and the pigs over the years. First of all, as a challenge for me to be more wise, both in what I offer to people and who I offer it to. I've always seen this as a subtle, perhaps even loving, denunciation of the dogs and the pigs. You know what I mean. I've thought of this as Jesus telling me not to offer my great truths to people who aren't ready for them or they may not be worthy of them. I've even thought at times that I've known some pigs and dogs in my life. People who just aren't worthy of the great wisdom that I have to give. So I shouldn't waste my time there. That's what I thought the essence of this teaching was. Nothing could be further from what Jesus is saying, and from the whole spirit of relationships in the kingdom. Jesus isn't telling us, listen to this, Jesus isn't telling us that we should not give pearls to pigs because pigs don't know how important the pearls are. Or, he's not telling us that we shouldn't give pearls to pigs because pigs aren't worthy of the pearls. We shouldn't give pearls to pigs because pigs don't need pearls. They may be of great value to me, none to the pig. We shouldn't give holy things to dogs because dogs don't need them. They're not helpful to a dog. So, you're young and idealistic and liberally minded and you don't want your friend to work for that company because they invest in countries that are violating human rights and they misuse the environment. Your pearls, you need to consider, may be of no value to your friend. According to Jesus, if you want to bring any adjustment to your friend's life, and do so advisedly, but if you want to bring any adjustment, it will be done through your efforts to show your friend the incredible relief and joy that comes from living life in the kingdom of God. That's it. That's all your friend needs from you. And even that comes gently, wisely, and upon request. So you're old and crotchety, And you don't want your nephew living with his girlfriend because that kind of activity doesn't honor God. Well, you may be right about that, but according to Jesus, your nephew's roommate situation may not be your primary concern. It may not even be on the first page in the list of primary concerns, even if you're right. If you want to bring any adjustment to your nephew's life according to Jesus, it will be done through your efforts to show your nephew the incredible, radical relief and joy that comes from living life in the kingdom of God, and that's it. Okay, let's choose our imaginations one more time. I want you to imagine, if you would, the kind of person who is always imposing their good stuff on others and you. They may even think they're being helpful. Oh, here, let me show you how to do that. Or they may be the kind of person who doesn't really make conversation. They just pontificate. Well, here's how that works. I I mean, here's what really happened in that case. At the end of those kind of comments, all of us standing around usually have to go, okay, anyway. Or they think of themselves as super friendly. It's just that, that they've always got a story that's much longer and better than yours. In fact, the conversation is always about them. Think about how effectively that advice or that help or that friendliness works for you. That's just how effective you and I are in our relationships when we offer what hasn't been requested. When we try to answer questions that people aren't asking. That's what Jesus is trying to get across to us. So if we aren't supposed to condemn, ever, And if we're not supposed to impose our good things on others who don't want or need them, then what are we supposed to do in kingdom relationships? Okay, what Jesus says next here is not meant to be comprehensive. He's not telling us everything we need to do to maintain healthy relationships. And it's not even a direct answer to my question. But what he gives us is foundational. He's giving us the highest priority. He's giving us the first step in kingdom relating. In summary, according to Jesus... What we do in kingdom relationships is take it to God. If we want healthy, life giving relationships, we will take our concerns to God. Our concerns, so we're cleaner, concerns of our our friends and neighbors. Ask, knock, seek, and God will answer. Of course, He will. When someone you love asks, knocks, or seeks, you give. God certainly will, Jesus says. How are these things connected? Don't judge, don't impose on others, ask God. How are those connected? Well, I think there's an obvious way they're connected. We can't change people by judging them. First of all, we're not always right. That's a big deal. Let's not forget that. Secondly, this isn't how human relationships work. The better way to relate does not include judgment. And we can't change people by trying to impose our unrequested solutions or help or insights on them. These are not helpful And they may not be needed. We value them. The pig doesn't. But God knows. And God loves. He loves us and he loves the other person better and more fully than we could. Ask God about your friend or your nephew. Knock on the door of heaven. Seek his help and advice. That's certainly one way that these thoughts connect, right? What would you like others to do for you? How about pray? Well, okay, do that for others. But I think there's more going on here. I think Jesus is aiming at more than just our bad habits. I think he's taking aim at the core of how we show up in relationships. When we condemn, we are almost always looking for something from the relationship that it won't give, or can't give, or shouldn't give. We've been disappointed or disillusioned by something they've done to us or something we're not getting from them or something that they're not doing that reflects on us. In other words, when we condemn, almost always we are at the emotional center of that activity. If we scratch down to the core, the issue is not what they're doing, but us. How their activity reflects on us or makes us feel. The same is true for our impositions, except that our impositions are often driven by insecurities or doubts. But it's still about us at its core. We elevate ourselves above the other person because we need to for some reason. So Jesus says stop, don't do that. Instead, ask God, knock at his door, seek him. He has the capacity to clean up your disappointment, to enable you to show up in the relationship healthily. He has the capacity to change your friend or nephew. You do not. You know, this is a teaching we often run past when we read it. I got that one, we sometimes think. Don't judge. I'm a little judgmental, but not that bad. I'm certainly not as bad as Harry and my uncle, one, but I suspect if we really had this one, our relationships would be much different. In fact, I think if we had this one, the world would be much different. Let's pray. So Father, this morning in this stillness, I pray that you would speak into our lives. It's funny, Lord, I've, I've just asked us to imagine someone else who's judgmental or someone else who puts us in the position of being a a dog or a pig well now Lord we give you permission to show us where we are imposing our good things on others show us Lord where we're being condemning we're so convinced that Our truth has to be heard as if it's going to make a difference. Lord, forgive us for answering questions that people aren't asking. Forgive us for the times that we use disdain and condemnation in our parenting, in our neighboring with our co-workers sometimes Lord we nurse these attitudes and we think that they don't leach into the relationship and this morning we recognize that they most assuredly do and we need your forgiveness Father we also confess we ask your forgiveness for the incredible imbalance in our lives between the amount of time we spend complaining versus the amount of time we spend praying. We reveal far more than we want to reveal about our priorities. We're so very, very thankful that you promised us that if we confess our sin, you're faithful and just And You will forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we pray this morning that You would make us clean. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. You give light. You are love. Bring light
1: to the dark. Every heart that is broken.
0: Great are you, Lord. One more time, you give life. You give life, you are love. You bring light
1: to the darkness you You restore every heart that is broken. Great are you, Lord.
0: Let's stand, we'll pray, and then we'll be dismissed. So let's stand. Lord, you're so good. And Lord, we just pray that this week will be a week we can see your hand at work, Lord. I pray that you would allow us to be your vessels and that we can be and make an impact in this community so that people could see not our works, but Lord, the works that you do through us to reveal who you are. We're so grateful. Give us a great week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have a great week.